Some organized uh, denominations have a statement of faith. So we're going to be looking at what we believe and why we believe it. If it's in the Bible, we ought to believe it. Can you say amen? Or like it or put a heart or something up. Praise God. So the first scripture we want to look at, by the way, John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, verse 21 through 22. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just believe you to open the scriptures to us this morning, God, and help us to learn and understand in Jesus' holy name. Amen. John chapter 4, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is the story of Jesus. He says, you know, we're going to go through Samaria. We're not going to take the long way around. He needed to go through. He left Judea, departed again to Galilee. But he needed, it says, he needed to go through Samaria. Kind of an unusual thing, but he had a plan. And uh, so they get to Samaria, a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So uh, his disciples went into town to get something to eat, and uh, Jesus sitting there, and uh, he's sitting by the well, and a, a woman from Samaria comes out by herself to get some water, and Jesus says, give me something to drink. And if you know the story, uh, she's surprised. Well, if you're a Jew, obviously, she could tell. Uh, how come you're asking me, a Samaritan, and not only a Samaritan, but a woman? Why are you asking me? Well, have you, you got the pot of water there, lady. I mean, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I'm thirsty. But he goes into a discourse on who he is. And uh, she says to him, you know, The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered, said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you to give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she looks around and says, You don't have nothing to get the water out of the well. Uh, Where then do you get that living water? So he makes a point that what he's talking about is not normal, natural, physical, he's talking about something spiritual. And he's, he's getting somewhere with her. And uh, she asks him, <clears throat> are you greater than our father Jacob, who actually really was not her father or ancestor, gave us this well? And Jesus kind of brushes aside the question. He says, whoever drinks from this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We live in a desert out here. Wouldn't it be wonderful you didn't have to drink water ever again? There's a little kangaroo rats around here. They've got long tail and they look like they hop around like kangaroos. They don't drink any water. All the moisture they need to survive, they get from what they eat. That'd be great. You don't have to worry about water because water's a big deal. Without water, there's no life. And, uh, Jesus tells her, what I got will come from within you and spring up into everlasting life. So she says, I want some of that. Sure. Great. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Notice she calls him sir. 
that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Because she come out by herself, because obviously she, um, as we find out, has led a scandalous life. So Jesus says, um, okay, I'll give you some right away. No, he doesn't. He gets to the heart of the matter and he says, um, well, go call your husband and then come back because he probably would like some too. And the woman says, ha, ha, I don't have a husband. And uh, Jesus says, you're telling me the truth. I can tell. Yes, you, I know you have no husband. You've had five husbands. So divorce is nothing new. And not only that, you're living with a guy now. They were shacking up back then. And he's not your husband. And that you have spoken truly. But Jesus isn't saying it in an accusative manner. He's not accusing her. Hey, you're a rotten, dirty sinner. No. He's telling her, I understand. I know what's going on. So she, instead of getting offended and upset, says to him, Sir. She addresses him as Sir again, respectfully. She says, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she understands. This is no ordinary man she's talking to. This is a man of God. Little does she realize she's talking to God himself. She finds out later. So she says, I have a question. We've been wondering about this, me and all of our people, because she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we're supposed to worship. The mountain she was talking about was Mount Gerizim, where in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11 and chapters 27 and 28, the blessings were pronounced. There was two mountains, Mount Gerizim, I don't remember the name of the other mountain, but the one mountain they stood on and they said, whoever loves God, whoever serves God, these blessings will come upon you, will chase after you, will overtake you and spread out from you. This is the place where she was. We're, spo- we're worshiping here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, because this is where the blessings were pronounced. It's a logical choice. The other mountains where all the curses were pronounced. If you don't serve God, all these terrible things will happen to you. You can read about them later. But Jesus, he says to her, and so she wants to know. I believe she's being sincere. She wants to know. People worship stuff. People worship something. Most people, unless they're totally uh, ungodly. But people want to worship something. And she is inquiring. I want to know the truth. Basically is what she's saying. She said, and so in verse 21, Jesus tells her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. The object of true, genuine worship is the Father in heaven. Father God, as some people call. That's the object of worship. That's what we're supposed to be worshiping, is God the Father. And then verse 22, she says, he tells her, basically, you really don't understand what you're worshiping. But we know. So he's including himself as a Jewish man. We know 
What we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet and hadn't opened the way and the veil of the temple hadn't been ripped open yet and the way made for everyone to come into a relationship with God yet. But Jesus is telling them that the revelation of who God is and what he wants to do on the earth comes through the Jewish people. Somebody wrote a book called The Gift of the Jews and in it, he, he, he describes, I can't remember the author's name, what the Jewish religion did is created, so to speak, um, worship of one God. Before that, there were, all the civilizations had different gods, multitudes of gods. And so Jewish religion introduced the idea of one and only one, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God. So Jesus is saying, we've got revelation from this God, the Jewish people. The hour is coming, he goes on to say, when you won't just worship here, but you'll worship everywhere. So I want to look at something interesting that uh, Matthew Henry says about worship says the stress is on the state of mind in which we worship him. He's talking about a revolution, Jesus is saying here, that something is happening, something is changing at that moment when he's talking to her. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, oops. (laughs) There we go. Paul the Apostle writes, he says, We are the circumcision, the Jewish people, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in, and uh, in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. We'll get back to that in a couple minutes here. But a revolution was going to take place. I want to look at um, what the definition of worship is. And in the dictionary it says, uh, it's the adoration, homage, or veneration given to a deity or something regarded as sacred. Keep that in mind. Worship is sacred. It's the rites or ceremonies the prayers and so on, that such adoration requires or assumes. In other words, God wants us to worship him. It could also be excessive or ardent devotion or admiration. Like I've said before, you've seen people at sporting events go nuts because their team scored a goal or something. That's excessive and ardent devotion. People going crazy for a sporting event. An archaic or an old-fashioned meaning of worship is dignity or worthiness. Psalm 8, verse 1 and verse 9, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. God is worthy of our worship. In the uh, Strong's Concordance, the uh, word worship is uh, the... In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word shakah, which means to depress or literally to prostrate, especially reflexively 
and homage to royalty or God. So when God touches you, I've heard of people that getting, you know, fall flat on their face. They don't know what to do. There's been times where the presence of God is so strong that people weren't able to stand up. It literally means to bow yourself down, to crouch, to fall down flat, to humbly beseech, to do reverence, or to make to stoop. Hallelujah. Um, the interesting thing about worth or worthiness is it's the quality that renders something useful or desirable. Most people have no clue what they really need in life. That is Jesus. There's, uh, I think it's uh, Bach or Handel. It's Jesus, joy of man's desiring. What people really need is a relationship with Jesus. That's the desire of everyone's heart and soul, is a relationship with God as their Father. And most people don't seem to have a clue that that's what they're looking for in that satisfaction in life. Hallelujah. It's the quality or combination of qualities that makes one deserving of esteem. God has got some qualities that are deserving of esteem. He's got a combination of qualities. He created everything just by speaking it into existence. He's got power. He raised Jesus from the dead. Still does miracles today. He's deserving of our esteem. It's a value uh, based on the merit or excellence of a person or thing. Worth often implies some intangible merit or power to produce results. People think God's dead. There was a saying back in the, I don't know when it was, the 50s, the 60s, or the 70s, God is dead. Well, your God might be dead, but ours is not. He's got, still has power to re produce results, still changes lives, still saves people and sets them free. Value refers to a measurable or precisely definable quality. And you know, God is beyond our comprehension just by the nature of his nature. <laughs> There's no way we're going to totally comprehend God in this lifetime. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul write, cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You'll never know everything about God in this lifetime. And so, because of that, we worship God and we stand in awe of Him. Hallelujah. Praise God. He is worthy of our reverence. And reverence is a feeling of profound respect, often mingled with awe and affection. Praise God. It's a state of mind. Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary says that salvation is something that had been revealed to the Jews, prepared, deposited with a particular people, and must be sought in connection with as issuing from them. That's why we have the Old Testament as part of our Bible, because Jesus is concealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. There's an interesting story about worship 
in 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam had set up, been set up as king over the northern kingdom, northern tribes. And God specifically told him, you're the king. But he didn't trust God and he got nervous. And instead of trusting God, he makes two golden calves. Two golden calves. Guess who else made a golden calf? Over in, uh, <laughs> in the book of Exodus, Aaron makes a golden calf. And uh, when Moses comes back down from the mountain, he tells uh, Moses, uh, everybody brought their gold and threw it in the fire and this golden calf just jumped out. And uh, Moses says, okay, well, kill everybody that worshipped it. And, and uh, then he ground it up to powder and so on and such forth. But Jeroboam does the same thing. He makes two golden calves and he sets one up in Samaria and one up in the northern area in Dan. Tells people, come and worship these things. It's like, are you guys? Whatever. Okay. Regard with reverence. Can you imagine? I, I used to do this when I, before I got saved. And the church I went to had a bunch of statues. And I would go in and, and uh, talk to the statues. <clears throat> but they never answered me. And they never will. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. So in 2 Kings chapter 17, there's another story of worship. But this is good worship. This is true worship. Jehoshaphat. This was about the year... See, I wrote it down here. About the year um, 850 B.C. King Jehoshaphat. No, actually this is in Chronicles, sorry. 2 Kings talks about the people uh, under Jeroboam. They feared the Lord, they had respect for God, but they served their own gods, that is, carved images. They worshipped carved images as if they could do anything for them. Let's go to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Um, what's happening is the uh, Moabites and the Ammonites and a bunch of other Soldiers come up, they're going to do battle against uh, King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat fears. It says he proclaims a fast and tells everybody, come to Jerusalem, let's pray. Hallelujah. And uh, so they come to Jerusalem, they pray, and a man, Jehaziel, He's a Levite of the sons of Asaph. He means, his name means beheld of God. He gets up and prophesies and tells everybody, don't you guys worry. God's going to go to battle for us. The battle belongs to God. Hallelujah. And so uh, the king Jehoshaphat asked, well, what should we do? And uh, it says that, uh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put the singers and the musicians in front of the soldiers. And uh, Jeremiah Bowser made a kind of a funny comment one time about this. He says, and they didn't put the soldiers and the singers and the musicians in front of the soldiers because they'd get killed first because they weren't very good singers and musicians. He said, they put them in front because God told them to do that because they were going to worship and sing praises to God. And what they were going to sing is, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. 
Psalm 136, every verse says something and then praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And by the way, the word or the phrase praise the Lord is the Hebrew word hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. David Wilkerson went to New York City back in the uh, uh, 50s to uh, try and do something about the gangsters uh, killing each other. And uh, there's a story related where he walked up to uh, a group of uh, young men on a street corner and uh, he perceived that they were going to do him harm. And just before they uh, jumped on him, he clapped his hands together and said, Praise the Lord! And they all scattered. Hallelujah. Psalm 134 verse 2 says, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Psalm 95 verse 1 and 2 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms or songs. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is how you worship. You shout, you sing, you clap. And it's an attitude of your heart. In Psalm 47, verse 7, it says, Sing praises with understanding. Paul, in his letter, one of the letters to the Corinthians, where he's talking about speaking in tongues, he says, What will I do? I'll sing in my understanding, and I'll sing in tongues. I'll pray in my understanding, and I'll pray in tongues. See the way. Give glory to God. Hallelujah. They had come for war, and the Bible says they went out. Verse 21, Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And they went out to war, and the singers went out in front, singing hallelujah, praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And the Bible says that something spiritual took place, and the Ammonites and the Moabites and those from Mount Seir they turned on each other and they killed each other. The enemy freaks out when we praise God. It's one of our weapons of our warfare. You have problems, you have troubles, try praising God. Remember what a uh, man of God said, don't tell God about your troubles, tell your troubles about God. Because God is the one who's going to go to battle for us. God is the one who brings the victory. Psalm 28, verse 2 says, I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Psalm 63, verse 4 says, I will lift up my hands in your name. It's a sign of surrender, lifting up your hands. Put them up, hands up. I surrender, don't shoot. But it's a sign of surrender. What do little kids do when they're small? Dad, pick me up. Cry out to God as your father. Father, pick me up. God, help me. Touch me, please. Hallelujah. In Nehemiah chapter 2, I can't remember if I put that in one of my <laughs> scriptures. Okay. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 2. Ezra the priest, these are the people uh, who had come back around 568 B.C. from the captivity in Babylon. And uh, there in Nehemiah Ezra, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, Ezra the priest brings the book, the law of Moses, for the whole assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. And he read from morning till noon. That was a long service. 
As soon as the light was up and he could read, he started reading. And he read from morning to noon, and the ears of all were attentive. It says in verse 5, when he opened the book, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Hallelujah. In verse 7 and 8, the Levites helped the people to understand. And they gave the sense of the word and helped them to understand the reading. And then, because the people realized, we're not serving God the way we're supposed to, they began weeping. Oh my goodness. It's like Mark Twain said, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do understand that bother me. Because he understood he wasn't right with God, that he's not where he should be. But Nehemiah or Ezra tells him, stop, stop, don't cry. Have a good day today. This is a good day. God is with us. And it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hallelujah. God is good. Hallelujah. So he's talking about Jesus. In verse 23 and 24, tells the woman, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers. Why does he say it now is? Because at that moment, Jesus was introducing the kingdom of heaven. He's introducing something new. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The stress is on the state of mind. One of the things I really enjoy is when we're in, a, 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 in, the, in church worshiping God. As a, as a body of believers, as corporate worship, there's something in the dynamic that uh, really, uh, I don't know how to say it, it brings out, um, not that God's not everywhere, but God, you know, I don't know about you, but most people like to be praised. Say, hey, you done a good job. Thank you very much. That's great. That looks nice. I believe God likes to be praised. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God. But here's something interesting. Jesus is saying that the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Those that will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not a matter of ceremonies, doing it right. You know, uh, years ago I went to, a, um, I guess you would call it a, um, <laughs> a festival. It was supposed to be a gathering of uh, spiritual people. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But I remember passing by this one group. And the guys kind of looked like uh, they might have been Jewish. And, and uh, they were all there clapping. Just clapping their hands. Trying to get intoxicated. As though, you know, they can... Uh, people are trying all other types of means to become intoxicated. But I believe they were sincerely seeking the presence of God. They might not have known it or I don't know what they were really doing, but they were clapping. And the Bible says to clap your hands, all your peoples shout praises to God. So that's one of the ways to worship. We applaud uh, and clap our hands when somebody does something good. Well, God has done something great. 
No reason why we shouldn't applaud God. That's why when we're in the corporate setting and we're worshiping God and the, and the, the music stops and the song ends, we clap because we're worshiping God. We're praising God. We're thinking on His terms, on His ways, and His ideas. Hebrews chapter 10. So God is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He says you must. It's not a choice. Well, you choose to worship God. But God is kind of saying this is the requirement for true worship is that you worship in spirit and in truth. Worship the way God wants to be worshipped. So we want to look at a couple more scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Some people say, oh, I don't have to go to church to worship God. Well, no, you don't. But there's something in the dynamic, there's something in the atmosphere that's different when you worship with a group of people and as opposed to being out in nature and just, you know, the nature is nice and lovely and it reflects the glory of God. But when you're assembled with other believers, it goes on to say, as the manner of some is not assembling, they forsake the assembling. But when we do assemble, we exhort one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were in church? You know, at the altar call, somebody is praying to receive Jesus and the rapture happens. That'd be an ideal place for that. That'd be a pretty cool, I think, so to speak. So much more as you see the day approaching. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. And the question is, will we be ready? Hallelujah. If you have your Bibles, also open to um, Psalms 145. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Psalm 149, praise the Lord. Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I remember years ago, um, there was a concert, a fundraising concert. It was probably one of the first of its kind. It was the concert for Bangladesh. And if you ever have a chance to listen to it, listen to the applause, because it sounds exactly like this. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 6, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotence reigns. If you listen to that, you hear the applause, it sounds like water rushing. Like uh, I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I've been around other uh, waterfalls, and it's a tremendous noise. And this is what it sounded like there on that recording of the people applauding the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings. Praise God. That's what heaven's going to be like. So 
Get used to loud worship because in heaven, apparently, it's pretty loud up there. There was a couple of other scriptures here. 135. Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O you servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is pleasant. The reason we sing in the beginning of the service is not like when we're in the building. It's not to give um, latecomers time to sneak in, you know, and, and get into church uh, unnoticed without disturbing the... <laughs> <laughs> the service it's to worship God that's the reason we sing praises to God before service because it it, it, it creates an atmosphere if uh, you ever get a chance to preach and you preach after uh, worship has been really awesome it's like man this is good praise God If you look out through many of the psalms, there's just psalms, and they're praising God, and they're telling, and, and quite a few of them have that phrase in the sanctuary of God. And what Jesus was saying to this woman is that it's not mere ceremony that impresses God. It's a matter of our hearts that impress God. When we worship God in a corporate setting, you, if you know the words, you can close your eyes and just sing the words and think. I have that frame of mind. Think about what we're saying, who we're singing to. I think it's going to be really funny. Psalm 150, verse 6, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Do you know insects have breath? Trees breathe? <laughs> that would be really amazing. If the trees sing, in the, one of the Psalms it says that the trees clap their hands. Everything that breathes, animals breathe, insects breathe. And there's like so many insects that blow your mind. You imagine them all praising God. <laughs> oh, that'll be amazing. Just amazing. Praise God. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. Hallelujah. So we worship God. Several ways to do it. Anywhere, anytime, any place. But there is a difference in the dynamic when we come together and assemble and worship God, sing songs, clap our hands, lift our hands, even worshiping God with our giving. Praise God. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. Second Kings or Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. Glory to God. Sing praises with understanding. Lift up your hands to his sanctuary. Believe God. You will keep him. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Speaking to God, you will keep him, that would be us, in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because we trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. 
for he is everlasting strength. He is the rock of ages. To me, to have our minds stayed on God means to lean upon him, take hold of him, to stand fast, and it will sustain us. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, that is about all I have for this morning. So let's close in prayer this morning. <clears throat> if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, He loves you. God the Father sent His only Son to take your place and my place on the cross. We are the ones that deserve to be punished. We're the ones that deserve the beating for all the bad stuff we've done knowingly against God. We're the ones that were in a rebellion against God. And we're the ones that deserve to be on the cross. But Jesus took our place, took the place of everyone. So this morning, if you have not received Jesus or acknowledged to God that you need a Savior, I want to encourage you this morning to say yes to Jesus. Just like I've seen Reinhard Bunke preaching to over a million people Will you say yes to Jesus this morning? I don't know how many of them said yes. Some 19 million over the years have said yes to Jesus through his, that, young, that man's ministry. He's now gone to his eternal reward, but his legacy continues, and the people that are working in his place are still winning souls to Jesus. So I want to ask you, if you have not received Jesus as your Savior, if you were just... Say a simple prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. If you're real, show me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer or something similar to that, just want to encourage you to uh, get in touch with us here at Living Hope Family Church in Marana. We'd love to encourage you in your walk with God and help you uh, make heaven your home and win souls.